We are in Isaiah, the gospel according to Isaiah. We are in chapter 7 this morning, walking through this book. We are in chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 1 through chapter 8, verse 10. So a large section of scripture, Bible's in the back. Get up, grab one right now. That's fine. If you don't have one, you'll need one. You'll have a lot of verses to cover. Keep that open in front of you. We will not, as I've mentioned many times, keep all the verses on the screen. There are just way too many. And as we turn to chapter 7, we have a new king. <laughs> kind of a new chapter, a new, a new uh, section of Isaiah. We saw in chapter 1 that it was really a, an account, like a mini compilation of the whole book of Isaiah, God's people are called into account for their rebellion, their sin, their, their breaking of the covenant that God made with them, for God is holy and just and he must punish lawbreakers. But because he's loving and he's gracious, he, he, he stepped into the mess that we made and he sent for us a redeemer who's done all that needed to be done for our salvation, washing away our sins and redeeming us. With justice and righteousness. We see that in chapter 1 verse 18. Come let us reason together says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet. They will be as white as snow. Goes on to say that Zion will be redeemed by justice. For those who repent. And by righteousness. That's, that's the repentance of a believer. And the righteousness and faith of Christ. And God through Isaiah has repeatedly said to his people. There's mercy and grace I want to give you. But have to turn and repent and come back to me. We got into chapters 2 through 5, we saw at the beginning of those chapters and the end of that chapter this wonderful description of the Messianic kingdom, but what we found in chapters 2 through 5 was what the real problem is uh, in God's people, both then and now, it's our problem today, and that is pride, haughtiness, pride. We just don't like people telling us what to do. Don't raise your hand, we're all in that boat. We get to chapter 6, we see this vision and this commission of Isaiah. And if there's any doubts about the pride and haughtiness of Isaiah, it comes crumbling down as this prophet, this mouthpiece of God, comes, bring, gets ushered into the throne room of God. As the angels, are, are the seraphims are, are flying and they're calling out one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. You are Pure, you are holy, you are other than all creation. The whole earth, angels cry out, is full of your glory. When God's holiness goes public, his glory is seen as infinite and immeasurable value and worth. Goes on display. Isaiah is profoundly humbled in this vision as he beheld the glory of God. We mentioned last week, no one can really see the full glory of God. There was, a, there was a, a modified manifestation that God allowed so that Isaiah in his finite mind can some, somehow in some way observe something of the majesty of God. And like anyone else who comes into the presence of a holy God, he cries out, woe is me. Woe is me. Woe is me for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. Not a king, the king. The Lord of hosts. And then God sends, we saw this last week, by grace. He graciously sends an angel to the altar, burns a, grabs a burning coal and touches the mouth of Isaiah. His guilt and his sins have been atoned for. And we ended last week recognizing that John the Apostle tells us in John 12 that Isaiah, uh, that, that John writes these things about Jesus, that some will see and not believe, that hearts are hard, just like Isaiah 6. He says he writes these things because he, Isaiah, saw the glory of Jesus. This great and holy God that Isaiah sees seated on a throne, exalted, is the pre-incarnate Christ. And the coal that is taken from the altar where sacrifice are given... Uh, a sacrifice are being, being done, points to the atoning, purifying work of salvation that Christ's blood, Christ's sacrifice, is the only remedy for sin and guilt and shame. And now Isaiah is ready to go on mission. He's ready to proclaim the good news of the word of God. 
He has seen his God. He recognizes sin. He recognizes he needs grace. He recognizes that God atones for sin. And then God sends him to a people. Then we find last week that Isaiah said, go to my people and tell them the word of God. But Isaiah, they're not going to listen. In fact, the word in which you speak to them, will, it will not only fall on deaf ears and hard hearts, it will actually be the cause of it. They refuse. They refuse to trust God as we get into chapter 7. We'll see that. And they turn to other nations for help. And in some ways, chapter 7 picks up where chapter 5 left off. You remember, in chapter 5, it spoke of the fall of Judah. We'll see that today. It made reference to a whistling of an enemy to come and discipline God's people. We'll see that today. Both describe, chapter 5 and chapter 7, the vineyard of the Lord. And they both speak, chapters 5 and, verse, and chapter 7, the need for the people to treat God as his own character calls for. He is holy, holy, holy. We get into chapter 7, there's a very distinct plot which you need to put your thinking caps on. Hopefully you had your Cheerios because it, it there's a lot of names in here. So uh, hopefully I'll be able to explain it pretty well. But there's a very distinctive plot that unfolds over the next few chapters. So we are in chapters 7, verses 1 through chapter 8, verse 10. That's where we're at. Keep your Bibles open. I'm not going to read. I'm going to read each section. There's four of them. Each one will have a section of Scripture. And what I'll do is I'll read the verses before we get into each point or each, uh, each heading. There's four of them, actually. Four movements. We have the message of trust. Isaiah's going to bring this message to the king. Then he's going to give this sign of Emmanuel, very well-known verse. He'll go into this threat of Assyria. We'll talk about that and then end in the presence of God, God with us. So those are the four movements, uh, four headings of our text this morning. So if you turn with me, and hopefully you're there, to the message of trust. And that's chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king, excuse me, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet amount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz, that's the king. You and Sher Jashub, the son, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has this devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up to Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and let us set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It will not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. May hmm. God add a blessing to the reading of his word. The historical context is really important. The historical context of chapter 7, we get into this chapter, is what's called the Syria Inframite threat. I'll explain in a minute. And, and King Ahaz's refusal to trust God. That's the context. And the narrative begins in chapter 7, verse 1, with the participants in this Syro Inframite conflict. 734, 732 BC. Look at what it says. It says, Rezim, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, also known as Ephraim. Okay, so when you read in your Bible, we're going to look at, when it says Ephraim, it means Israel. Okay? They joined forces, Israel and Syria joined forces to attack Judah. 
based on 2 Kings 15. It was something that was ongoing even before um, Ahaz was king. His father had dealt with this two kingdoms coming together and trying to hurt Judah. Ahaz become kings. Jotham is dead, his father. And now he will not join this alliance. He's in Judah's southern kingdom. And so they say, you know what? Let's have a military conflict and go after Judah. Now, historically, if we remember, Israel, in Solomon's day, there were 12 tribes. Solomon dies, remember, very important, the kingdom splits in two. The northern kingdom, made up of 10 tribes, is called Israel, also known as Ephraim. Two of the southern kingdoms, Judah and Benjamin, formed the southern kingdom called Judah. Israel, Judah. Ephraim, Judah. Okay? Got to follow that here today. The northern kingdom, Israel, Ephraim, their capital is Samaria. Judah, the southern kingdom, their capital is Jerusalem. They were the only two, king, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that were faithful to the, what they call the, the Davidic dynasty, the truth and the commitment and the covenant God makes with David that there'll be an eternal son. We saw that in 2 Samuel 7. There'll be an eternal son with an eternal kingdom that will come from David. So what we have here is Judah, the southern kingdom, fighting with the northern kingdom, Israel, Ephraim, with another people called Syria. So we have actually two brothers fighting. Israel, Ephraim is fighting with Judah. There's a family feud. Like you've never heard of a family feud before. Families quarreling. Can you believe it? So Israel, Ephraim, and Syria, their capital is Damascus. They were afraid of Assyria, who was rising to power, and so they said, Syria said with Israel, let's, let's get together, our two nations get together, let's, let's fight against this world power, Assyria, who wants to take over everything, okay? So if you're not following me, I got a map. It's really important you see this because it, it's the whole text. So Judah, you see Judah, I don't have my uh, clicker, but Judah's on the bottom, everybody see Judah. Above it to the north is Israel. Ephraim, same place. Above that is Syria. So Syria and Israel are together because if you keep going up and then you move to the east a little bit, you see Assyria. Uh, Assyria is gaining power and strength and domination in the world. They could beat up all three of those little nations. So they said, let's get together and let's, let's have a coalition. So Syria and Israel form a coalition. It would be nice if the two of them could add a third one. So they say, let's, let's get Judah to join us. But Ahaz in Judah is like, I don't want to do that. Like, all right, well, we'll make you do it then. That's what's going on. Okay? Very important. <laughs> this is interesting too. Ahaz from Judah, I'm going to keep saying that so you follow me, because you'll be like, I don't know what he's talking about. Ahaz from Judah tells Israel and Syria, listen, I'm not joining y'all against Assyria. I'm not going to do that. So what does Judah do? The Bible tells us that the king of Judah, Ahaz, in 2 Chronicles, goes and talks to the king of Assyria. And says, look, these two small kingdoms, they want to they come in and, and, and they want me to join the lines. They want me, they want me to join. I don't want to do that. Will you help me? See what's going on? What do you think Assyria said? Sure. We'll help you. And as the, as the wars unfold, we'll see some of it today. Assyria marches in Galilee, Gilead, northern Israel, takes them captive, destroys Damascus in Syria, all in 732 B.C. What's also interesting is as Syria and Israel come against Judah, as I said, they actually gain a little ground, we read later on in 2 Kings. Ahaz, the king of Judah, actually has an invasion and people die. But they don't get the final, they don't get to destroy Jerusalem but there's discipline being done on Ahaz, which we will see in a minute. 
Okay? The two armies, Syria and Israel, didn't destroy Jerusalem, but they did come in and, and, and wreak havoc and kill many people. Now, the point of all that is the same. King Ahaz of Judah did not trust God. That's the point. He did not trust God. The king sought after another nation, Assyria, to help Judah against Syria, against Israel, rather than trusting in the Lord. That's the point. So much so that the king was gripped with fear, not faith, in the midst of this adversity. Chapter 7, verse 2. When the house of David, that's Jerusalem, that's King Ahaz, he's of the house of David, from the lineage of David. When the house of David was told, verse 2, Syria is in a league with Ephraim, that's Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Notice leaders who lead in fear have people follow what? In fear as well. It spreads. Notice again that the phrase house of David. So it's, it's the house of David. And, and, and Isaiah, we're going to return to this next week. We're going to see how important the Davidic dynasty and the importance of God's promise to David that a son will come. How important that is in all these narratives. We'll see that. So the king has reached the decision. What will he do? Will he live in faith? Will he trust the Lord? Or will he live, will he live in fear? And I, I love how the Bible is so relevant People say, ah, the Bible's not relevant. Really? How many times are we faced with circumstance? We are faced with, with a crossroad. We are faced with difficulties, adversity, and we are faced with the same decision. Will we act in faith and trust God, or will we act in fear and not trust? Will we rely upon God's word, or will we seek counsel from someone else? Now, we ought to seek counsel from each other. We ought to, the Bible says we ought to lean on one another. We ought to live in community with one another. We ought to help one another out and seek the will of God. That's the point, and that's the difference here. They weren't doing that. And that's why God steps in and sends his prophet with the word, with his word, with his will. They were seeking help. Listen, Ahaz, the king of Judah, was seeking help outside the word and the will of God. What does God do? He sends the prophet. Look at verse 3. Go meet Ahaz, tells Isaiah. Go meet him, you and your son. Now the word sheer, Joshua, means a remnant will return. So Isaiah's got this son of him that he calls a remnant will return. He knows that Israel, excuse me, and Judah are going to be exiled. And some people say, well, he named his son as a positive thing. Like, yeah, a remnant's coming back. Or a negative thing, like only a remnant's left. I'm like, I, maybe both. I don't know. But a remnant, he's got this son with him and he knows. He says, go meet the king. He's at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So, just so you know, the king is looking at his water supply. He's out making sure that he can secure the water supply because when an incoming invasion and things get locked down, you ain't going to live very long without water. That's why he's there. Say to the king, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Don't let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the anger of Rezin and Syria. He was the king of Syria and son of Remaliah, who's the king of Ephraim or Israel. In other words, he says, listen, don't fear. I got you. Isaiah is telling Ahaz, listen, don't fear. God has got you. Oswald in his commentary says, faith is always faith. It is steeped into the unknown. It, it, it is a step into the unknown. Excuse me. Faith is always faith. It is a step into the unknown. There will be evidences to support it, but there's never advanced proof so that we take the step of faith with no risk attached. That is not faith. The house of David is not only under attack, but look at verse 6. Their intention was to go in, remove the Davidic king from the Davidic line, and put their own puppet king in from another offspring, another, another seed, as the Bible calls, a man named Tabeel. So we'll end the dynasty of David now, and we'll take him out, and we'll put our own king in there. And Isaiah comes to, to Ahaz, king of Judah, to, to, and his words are meant to encourage him. 
Man, man, don't act in fear. Rest in God's promises. And notice the mercy and the grace of God. Ahaz is running and looking for, for, for help from somewhere else. He is checking his water supplies. He, he's not trusting God, yet God comes to him anyway. Through the prophet and says, don't be afraid. Trust God. Trust he will deliver you. He needs to be, look what it says. He needs to be careful. Be careful. In other words, watch yourself, that word means. Guard your ways. Don't jump to wrong conclusions. Don't run into foolish mistakes and these premature decisions. Bad choices. Unfaithful decisions. We make them too when we're afraid. When fear controls us, we will not make wise, godly, biblical decisions. It won't happen when we're controlled by fear. Isaiah says, not be afraid. Do not lose heart. If you're going to go, keep going. Listen, Ahaz, if you're going to go through this needless help asking other nations to protect you from Syria and from Israel, you're not trusting God. So his decision is clear. King's decision is clear. Believe that God is faithful to the house of Israel, to the house of Judah, 2 Samuel 7, to the Davidic dynasty, He promises to bring an eternal king, the savior of the world, through David, through the lineage of David. Believe in God. Believe that he's all-powerful. He's sovereign to protect his people against these two armies. Or believe the opposite. God is not faithful to keep his promise. God is not faithful to keep his promise to David. And he's unable, not strong enough, to stop these plans of these two nations to usurp the king. They were once a smoldering stump, he says, but now pieces of burnt wood. God knows. What is there to fear when the throne belongs to Jerusalem and God is faithful in his promises? Second, last part of verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. I don't see that written on anybody's wall, right? <laughs> Literally, if you do not firm up, you won't be confirmed. If you live by faith, if you, don't, if, if you don't live by faith, you won't live at all. But if you trust my provision, if you will lean on me, I will provide. And I can't help but think here for a moment of chapter 6, just for a moment. If there's no one seated on a throne, if there's no one lifted high above the earth, if there's no one who is holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of his glory, then we and them are all at the mercy of the impulses of our national leaders, earthly leaders. But if there is such a one who's seated high, who's sovereign over, we need not to fear what can man do to us. And if Ahaz, and we believe that truth of God and see that vision of God, our perspective will change. Our our life will be transformed. Ahaz, his house will be established. Our lives can be truly secure, stable, and immovable in Christ. So the big E on the eye charts, what are you trusting in? What what is your truest truest source of confidence for the hard times, the dark times? Many times, if we're honest, it's during those times in our lives when we're faced with that decision, that crossroad, that crisis, that it reveals to us what we're trusting in. God brings trials into our lives that sometimes shake us to our boots. And he does that so, so we can lean on him, on him alone. And the lesson of verses 1 through 9, stop trusting in yourself. Stop trying to make cunning alliances with those that are outside the will and the, and the word of God. Trust and throw yourself on God alone. Now, verses 10 through 18. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign. Okay? Ask for a sign. You don't trust me? Ask a sign. Of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, that's Isaiah. Hear then, O house of David. 
King Ahaz. It is too little for you to weary men that you would weary my God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat, eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Again, I want to see God's grace here in in his word. He comes to, to, to the fearful and unfaithful king Ahaz and he says, I'll tell you what. You don't trust me? Ask for a sign. Ask me to show you a sign to show that I'm with you, that I'll protect you, that I'll be your provision. Go ahead, ask. Ask me anything you want. You have a blank check. And God stoops to, the, to, to, to Ahaz's weakness and offers his faith, his weak faith and advantage of a sign. How patient God is. How merciful God is. How gracious God is to sinners and rebellions, rebel, rebellious people like me. Ahaz, God says, as high as Sheol, as high and as low, you, blank check, write whatever you want. And Ahaz says, no, nah, thank you anyway. And then he says, like he's humbly, you know, he's a humble man, a believer, and he says in verse 12, I will not ask, I will not test the Lord your God, the Lord the God. Now, there is some credence when you first read that, you think, well, there's some people that have tested the Lord in unbelief and things didn't go well. Just ask the, you know, the, the, the crew that was walking around the desert for 40 years, right? But this is different. Ahaz is told by the prophet of God to do something. But, but he, he's the one who's scared. He's the one who took matters into his own hands. This is a matter of unbelief. So I, Isaiah, somewhat irritated with his response, rebukes him, verse 13. But notice with me, if you have your Bibles over, notice with me the shift. From verse 11, ask for a sign, and the rebuke in verse 13. Notice the shift. Look what it says. Verse 11, ask a sign of the Lord who? Your God. Isaiah says to King Ahaz of Judah, your God. Ask a sign of your God, verse 11. Verse 13, after he doesn't want to do it, look what he says. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary what? My God. He was your God when he asked you to step out in faith. Now, all of a sudden, your rebuke, it's my God. And then the prophet speaks of the sign. Very famous prophecy. Maybe one of the most famous ones in Isaiah, I don't know. Verse 14. Therefore, you don't, you don't want to ask for a sign? Okay. The Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel. Now, I wish I could come to that verse and tell you, boy, that's an easy verse to interpret. Unfortunately, it is not. Not at least in the Old Testament. We know in the New, we'll look at that later. Andrew Davis, community group leaders, have the, his commentary. He says there, there are three difficult issues interpreting what does this mean. I'm going to use them. Number one is, was this a sign that was given to Ahaz, or was this something completely for the future? Number two, what does it mean by a virgin shall conceive? You say, well, it, doesn't make, it makes sense to me. Not necessarily because the word virgin can be translated differently. And third is, what does it mean? And what's the importance of the word Emmanuel? Okay? That's what we're looking at just for a moment. So number one, was a sign given to Ahaz and was it fulfilled in that day? Some people say no. Some people say a sign was given to Ahaz the king. A son will be born by a virgin, but it never was fulfilled because Ahaz rebelled. I don't necessarily buy that. I don't necessarily buy that. I think the whole point is that Isaiah is making is that there's going to be a sign. It's going to be given to you, Ahaz, and it's going to take place. A child will be born. It's final and full fulfillment will be in the New Testament, but that's okay. There are, temp there are times in the Old Testament where prophecies are given, partial fulfillment then, and then a full fulfillment in the coming of Jesus. So there's no problem with that. Okay? 
I, I think that not only was the son given, um, the sign was given, and God is with his people, and, 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 and I think that actually takes place. Okay? Number two. The word virgin in the Hebrew, Alma, always carries this understanding that it's a not a married, it's an unmarried woman. In Hebrew, in the Hebrew culture of that day, a woman who was not married, who has never been married, would be what? A virgin. Okay? But the word virgin in Hebrew, there is a word in the Hebrew for virgin, but it's not used here. Alma is used, and there's some ambiguity to the, to the, to the actual word. But in the Old Testament and in other places, that verb, that word Alma is used of a virgin. So at some point, I believe what Isaiah is saying is there is a woman of, of, of marriageable age who has never had a sexual intimacy and has never had a son. And that son and that, that woman will give birth to a son. Okay, that, 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 that's going to happen. So yes, I believe a child was born in that day named Emmanuel. A virgin did conceive with natural human relations, obviously, and bore a son, and they called his name Emmanuel. Who that son is, we don't know. The scripture doesn't say. Was it the son of Isaiah? Was it the son of the king? We're not really sure. Was it another son? We don't know. Scripture doesn't say, and that's not the point. The point is, a son will be given. The sign was given, and the sign was fulfilled because... Verse 16 says, before he knows the boy how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land will come, excuse me, the two kings will come and will uh, be, what does it say, will be deserted. So that actually took place. The son had to be given. I personally, not that anybody might care, but I think the son was born of a virgin through natural relationship, and I think, I personally believe it was probably one of the sons of the king because of this whole Davidic dynasty it's possible i don't know but he was born so did it happen in that day yes partial fulfillment virgin birth yes as a woman of marriageable age a young woman who was a virgin got pregnant had a baby named him emmanuel lastly what's the significance we come to the real reality of this word uh, emmanuel what's the point what's the significance well here's the significance ahaz was not what? Trusting in God. Ahaz did not rely upon the Lord. The true source of Judah's security and provision was in something else. And what God was trying to tell his king through this sign is, I will be with you. Trust me. God was protecting you. So when Syria... And Israel, will see this a little bit later, when they are defeated, Judah can look and say, our God is with us. But what we'll see is when they were defeated, Judah in their pride said, what a great job we did. And God's trying to show them through the sign that I am with you. But as many times in these prophecies, look at verse 17, unfortunately God announces uh, once again, that Judah is going to be disciplined for her rebellion. Look at verse 17. The Lord will bring upon who? You. And upon your people. And upon your father's house. That's the Davidic line. Days have not since, you have seen since the split of the kingdom when Ephraim departed, Israel departed from Judah. The prophet almost lulls him into this, this place of, of, of recognizing that a son will be given, I'll be with you, and then says, we know your unbelief is going to take place, and therefore, you know what? Judgment's coming upon you, or discipline is coming upon you, chastising is coming upon you. And he deals with Ahaz's self-sufficiency. They refuse to trust God. They refuse to trust, and they put, he put his faith in Assyria. Now, remember we said earlier, Ahaz asked Assyria for help. And now, as we look past verse 17, we will see that the king of Assyria will be his very downfall. The person he's asking for help will be the downfall. And that reminds me, family, that reminds me. Sometimes the greatest adversity and, and discipline 
comes upon us when God gives us our desires and answers that prayer. Like, ah, yeah, I prayed for that. Didn't work out. And the Lord's like, yeah, well, because you prayed not in faith. It was something you wanted, but I'm trying to teach you. So Assyria is going to be a threat. Verses 18 to 25. Follow along with me. In that day, the day we just talked about, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on the thorn bushes and on the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair, the feet will be swept away, the beard also. In that day, verse 21, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns, thistles and thorns. With bow and arrows, men will come there for the land and will be briars and thorns. And, verse 25, as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. This explains the coming of Assyria into the land of Judah. Assyria is not just a mighty and ruthless army, but Assyria is going to be used, now listen, as a tool in the, in the Father's hand to discipline Judah. Notice how Isaiah speaks of assurance in that day, 18, in that day, 20, in that day, 21, in that day, verse 23. It's going to happen. And in verses 18 through 19, God summons the Assyrian nation from the north. He even speaks about Egypt from the south. As he, as, as, as he does, they, they do his bidding as he whistles for the army, armies to come. From what I read this week, Egypt was a land filled with flies, probably because of the rivers. Assyria, known for its beekeeping. The metaphor is this large troops from Assyria are marching into and decimating the land. Enemy soldiers swarm everywhere in Judah. This is coming upon you. And in verse 20, the sovereign God would specifically use Assyria as a barber uses a razor to cut hair. And when he talks about cutting of these hair, it's, 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 it's a way to say you'll be humiliated, disgraced as a defeated nation. Even prisoners and slaves were shaved in that day as a mark of, of, of insult, dishonor, disrespect. And notice this irony. It's almost funny if it wasn't so darn sad. Ahaz is negotiating or had negotiating and hired Assyria to help them. Kind of hires them to do what he could not do. And yet here God says, I will hire. Look at verse 20. In other words, Ahaz had paid tribute and in some sense hired the Syrians in order that they may shave the heads of Israel and Syria who's coming against them. Now that hired razor serves as an agent for God as he's going to shave Judah herself. In that day, verse 21, flocks and herds of people of Judah count their blessings. They have just a single cow and some sheep. Yes, there's abundance of milk. There's not enough people to use it and drink from it. It'll be used as curds. And honey, even though people are there, there won't be enough people to drink, provide for it. And then verse 23 through 25. We see, we see even in this devastation that, that even though the land is going to be decimated, even though the army is going to come in, there's still food to eat. But yet verse 23 through 25 this, this valuable cultivated land of Judah. These fields and the farmlands will become but a wilderness. Only good for hunting. In the land of agriculture where there is so much agriculture in Judah. It's devastating to them. They won't have expensive vineyards anymore. Notice that? But thorns and briars. Thistles and thorns will come to the land. Remember? 
Isaiah 5 said the same thing. And now Isaiah 7 is saying the same thing about their vineyards. All pointing really back to Genesis 3 with sin and rebellion of God's people and how they will work and thorns and thistles will rise and grow. And God's message to Ahaz teaches us the same thing, does it not? We should not fear our enemies. When God has given us a promise in his word, we stand on that, particularly in our salvation, that we are to trust him, that we need to be calm, we need to be careful, we need to stand firm in our faith because failure to trust God as we move forward and make decisions of our lives only will lead to emptiness and disaster. We should not put the patience of God to the test by, not, by just refusing his help. We should run to him. Run to one another. Look at God's word. Seek God's plan. Seek God's will. Be filled with the spirit and walk according to faith. Faith in God. Not fear, but in his constant promise of his presence. Otherwise, emptiness and despair as we see here. Listen, fulfillment and real, eternal, everlasting satisfaction can be obtained only when we trust and rest in who God is. In the gospel, the famous words of D.L. Moody, trust in yourself and you are doomed to disappointment. Trust in your friends and they will die and leave you. Trust in your money and you will have it taken from you. Trust in reputation, and some slanderous tongue may blast it, but trust in God, and you are never to be confounded in time or eternity, end quote. Before I leave this about trust, let me, let me just say this, something that you could think about, talk about in your community groups. When we talk about trusting in God, it really has to do with character, right? Trusting God has to do with character. You can't separate trusting someone Separate from their character, right? You ever been waiting for someone? You're like, no, they're going to be late because they're always late. Sorry for all you late people. To to trust means you know someone well enough that you can count on him, you can count on her to act in accordance with their character and their trust. Believing God, having faith, trusting is the, the fundamental reality for believers to have our life with God. God has proven himself over and over and over as trustworthy, as faithful. It's actually foolish not to trust him as he revealed himself as a faithful God. Message of trust, the sign of Emmanuel, the threat of Assyria, and finally the presence of God. Let me read this to you. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write it on a common characters. Belonging to, here's a word for you if you're looking for a boy's name. Maharshala Hashbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah, the priest, and Zechariah, the son of, here's another one, Jeberashiah, to attend, you should say it fast, everybody thinks you know. Um, I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Maharshala Hashbaz, for the, before the boy knows how to cry, my father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Then the Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over resin in the sons of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing against them the waters of the river, or the waters of Euphrates, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. It will rise up over all its channels and go over its banks, and I will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching up to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, or be evil, you peoples. And be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armors and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. So we've seen in chapter 7 this, this coming of the Assyrian nation uh, that, that's going to uh, come against Syria and Ephraim, but also God's going to use the Assyrians to discipline Judah. And in many ways, here as we get into chapter 8, God is saying the same thing. 
Right? He's saying the same thing. In fact, Calvin writes this. But because the wicked are not terrified by any threatenings, in other words, they didn't get it the first time, it was therefore necessary that this prediction should be repeated and demonstrated by another sign. So chapter 8 begins, continues, and brings light to what God has already said in chapter 7. The, the Syro the Ephraimite crisis is still going on. Syria and Israel still want to fight Judah, and Judah is still in alliance with Assyria. And the name Emmanuel, the sign that was given, was primarily in chapter 7 for Ahaz, the king, the dynasty, the house of David. Now this sign is given for the people, the population, for those living in Judah. And the question remains the same. Is God really with us? The message in chapter 8 is both doom and gloom, as we saw earlier, and confidence. In chapter 8, verse 1, God speaks directly to his prophet. He says, go get a tablet and write a word on it. Now, the tablet could be a piece of metal, a piece of wood. They're saying it's not a scroll. He says, write a word on it. He didn't say write a name. We don't know that yet. Isaiah doesn't know that yet. He says, write, write. I want you to write this word on it. Mahal Shalah Hashbaz, which means speeding to the plunder, or hurrying to the spoil. ESV study Bible, the spoil speeds, or the prey has. In other words, what Isaiah is announcing is both kingdoms will have a swift coming upon them. Ephraim, Israel, and, and Syria will have a swift army, which will be Assyria, come upon them. There'll be, there'll be disaster. In fact, he says in verse 2, go get witnesses, according to Hebrew law, go get Uriah, and go get Zechariah. Uriah and Zechariah. Now, I mentioned earlier that Ahaz, king of Judah, Ahaz, king of Judah, made an alliance with Assyria. Remember I said that. Assyria, when they conquered, Assyria conquered Syria, the king of Judah met them there at Damascus with Uriah. You know what they did? They went into Syria when Syria was being pummeled by Assyria and they looked at the idols and the worship altar that they had for false gods. And King Ahaz of Judah and Uriah the priest both said, wow, wouldn't that be nice to bring that back to Jerusalem into God's house? And the king and this Uriah both brought the false altars back to Jerusalem to set up worship there. He's the one that God says, you know what, go get a witness, go get that guy. Not only King Ahaz of Judah are you implicated in this, but let's bring that priest in here too. That's exactly what's happening. And you got to remember, they probably, you know, King, Uriah, uh, King, King Ahaz and, and Uriah, the priest, probably don't like Isaiah a whole lot. Like every time we try to do something, you're like, you're wrong, you're sinning, stop, repent, and turn. Like that's all you have to say, right? They're called to testify. So when... Listen, so when the prophecy comes true, they know Isaiah is the man of God. Write it out, bring witnesses, so when I fulfill my word through your preaching, Isaiah, it'll be authenticated that you are my man. That's what's happening here. Verse 3, Isaiah and his wife, the prophetess, she's a prophet in her own right, or maybe because she's the wife of a prophet, they have a son. They have a son. And unlike chapter 7, Emmanuel's named by mom, here this son is named by who? The father. And the public writing of Isaiah with this name or this word becomes the name of his son and the, the witnesses and his name are cemented together. And the implication is simple, just like Emmanuel and just like his son here in this, in this passage, that word means God is with his people. Judah's enemies will be destroyed, and, but God can, and God can be trusted. Write his name, Maharshal Abbas. And same thing, look with me. My father and my mother, as, as short time after that, the child will say, my father and my mother, the king of Assyria, will come and destroy the nations. God is just saying the same thing. And what was prophesied with Emmanuel and, and the destruction of Syria and, and, and uh, Israel is now confirmed again. And actually, within two years, it took place, 732 B.C., Damascus and Samaria were defeated. 
Look at verse 5. Then the Lord spoke to me again. (laughs) This time the tables have turned. God is saying, listen, I am, God is telling the king of Judah, I am, I will, I am with you, and I will destroy your enemies, Israel and Ephraim. Israel is Ephraim and Syria. I will destroy them, but because you will not trust me, the signs I'm giving you over and over, I am faithful because of that, verse 6 through 8. Because this people has refused, see that? The help of God, and God is, God is seen as the waters of Shiloh. Because this people have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. In other words, they're saying God, God, God is seen figuratively these gentle waters that are flowing. But look, they're rejoicing over, what does it say? They're rejoicing over Rezim and the son of Remaliah. What he's saying is, Lord, we didn't trust you. These, these, these rivers that are flowing are just nice and gently. But you know what? Look at these armies that were against us. We won. Look what we did. They trusted in themselves. And they rejoiced. And they thought, this is great. But notice verse 6. Because of that, verse 7, therefore, look, cause and effect. Because you, 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 you did not trust me, I'm going to send Discipline. I'm going, to, I'm going to discipline my children for your despising of the Lord, calling me a, 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 a slow-moving water. Look what, look what Isaiah does. Look what he says. God's not to be considered this, this, this slow Shiloh, verse 5, of water. Look at verse 7. Behold, the Lord is bringing up against them, what? The waters of Euphrates against Judah. Mighty and many, the kings of Assyria and all his glory. You want to talk about me being this smooth, slow waterfall? I'm going to send in into your disbelief nation a mighty, mighty water. Verse eight, uh, verse 7, verse 8, we find this uh, flowing water, this flood flowing. Uh, verse, uh, um, verse 8, it will sweep onto Judah. It will overflow. It will come up to your neck. Not, you're not going to drown, but it's going to be real close. And look what he says. Oh, Emmanuel. It's almost this cry, uh, this prayer. Oh, Emmanuel. It's not just a son. It, it, is, it is the owner. It is, it is the owner of the land of Judah. He cries out. It is Emmanuel's land. Oh, land, he cries out. He's weeping as, the, as, as, as the, these people are being destroyed and, and devastated. The land that was promised to the people of God. And you can see how this, this name Emmanuel is coming up again. And it's not simply someone's child. It's not simply the king's child. It's not simply somebody else's child. It is someone who ultimately who is the owner of the land of God's promise. Verses 9 through 10, in closing, God says, be broken, you people. He's talking about other nations. And verses 9 through 10 basically says this. You guys, I'm using Assyria. I'm using you to come in and to discipline my children, but don't get comfortable. Right? Take counsel together. That's fine, but it's not going to come to pass. You think you're going to come in and discipline Judah and have your way with her. It's not going to happen. I'm going to let you go. But so far... And you'll go no more. In Assyria, that's exactly what happens. It's not until Babylon, years later, when Judah is finally devastated. But God is disciplining him, uh, disciplining their children. But look what it says at the very, very last chapter 10. It will not stand. Why? For God is with us. You're going to discipline your people. You're going to march in these land. They're going to teach them a lesson about trusting God. But it's not going to devastate Oh, Emmanuel, the land, uh, the, the owner of the land, because God is with us. And he points back, he's saying the land, God's people, even though they're descending into darkness, there's an emerging community of believers who could cry out, God is with us. God is with us. As God's people are commanded to trust God, the Davidic succession to the throne are threatened, and God says, no, I'll be with you. And several centuries later, God remembered the sign given to Ahaz. He fulfilled his word perfectly through a virgin whose son is named Emmanuel, 
who by the power and overshadowing of the Holy Spirit will come upon Mary a virgin. She will become pregnant. She will conceive a son who is fully man and fully God. His name is Jesus the Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. And as Joseph is contemplating all that was happening and, and, and for the moment thinking that his unfaithful betrothed wife, uh, uh, Mary, was that unfaithful, the Lord appears to him and says, Joseph, son of David, the Davidic line, the lineage of David, fear not, take your wife. She's been, what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son. His name will be Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. See the line, the lineage, all of David, all of Emmanuel. And then Matthew says this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, all this fulfillment, the word Emmanuel fulfilled in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1. He was God with us and for us, Romans chapter 8. In him alone is fulfillment of the word. If you don't stand firm in your faith, that is faith in Christ, then you will not stand at all. It is God in us and through us and with us as we go through adversities and hardships and trials who says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. And, and by far the greatest enemy and the greatest deliverance we need is on judgment day when our sins have been defeated. Death has been conquered. And on that day when we stand before God, Jesus will say, I know you are mine. I died for your sins. I rose from the dead. Enter into the joy of your salvation. You know what, family? As we, we face hostile times, we face difficulty, our nation is headed in a direction that is anti-God. And for those of us who stand on the, on the word of God, on, on the worship of God, we're going to be attacked like they were in those days. And like Ahaz, will we find our hearts afraid or will we stand in faith? Will our hearts shake like the trees? Or will we stand and say, God is my salvation. God is with me. God will never leave me, forsake me. The gospel shows me that God will always be my father. So be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your hearts be faint, for God is with us. Not just a cliche. That's the reality. And when we lean on him, what more do we need? He is the source. He is the power. He is our consolation. And although they're being disciplined, there is a son who brings us into a permanent relationship. His name is Emmanuel. As the band, you guys can come on up. Various trials, family, will, will come on our lives, will come to our lives. And it will reveal to us and to me what we're trusting in. And sometimes when we have hardship and difficulties, we find ourselves blown off course. Maybe it's finances, maybe it's health, maybe it's relational issues. Will, will we be blown like the wind or will we today have this growing stability and security in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? He is Emmanuel. He is God with us, the only Savior of the world. Jesus Christ, who said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. God with us, Emmanuel. I want to close with a... With a, with a Words of an old hymn, 1855. Catherine von Schlegel. Nice Italian girl. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief and pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend, thy thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Father, as, as we see your hand in all of creation, you are sovereign over the world. You have kept your promises to David. You have kept your promises to us. And Father, as we walk this walk of faith, we pray that you would strengthen our faith in you. We strengthen our faith in your word. You would strengthen us, Lord, as we face trials and difficulties, that we would trust you, that we would lean on you. And that because of Jesus Christ, our good God, our Savior, who willingly went to the cross, and while we were yet sinners, he died a brutal death, taking our wrath, our sin upon himself, and then rising from the dead, forgiving us of our sins, canceling all that is against us, 
and loving us eternally, Lord. We have you that we can lean on always, no matter what's going on in our lives. So, Father, help us as we sing this song to cement in our souls the truth of the gospel that we are yours and yours eternally. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.